0: There have to be things like unions where people can collectively bargain for the value of their data. Uh, This is essential because if it's each person against each other person, then the price will collapse. On the Internet, there's nobody who's on your side and there, there needs to be. So they can serve that function. They can become the first advocates. If nothing changes,
1: um, then things just continue to get commoditized and we get packetized and commoditized. The idea of data dignity to me is profound um, because I think it's fundamental to what the future can look like. It is my pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks, the visionary technologist, futurist, philosopher, musician, Jaron Lanier. Jaron, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So Jaron, you should know I quote you on the trail or I quoted you when I was running for president um, all the time. Uh, Some of your ideas, I think, are so important for not just the future, but what we're facing right now. Uh, so the uh, the idea I quoted most often um, was you've written and spoken on the fact that negative ideas and sentiment spread more powerfully and viscerally online through social media than positive sentiments. And that has very, very profound implications.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, uh, at least my understanding of it is that we're dealing with some very old and kind of nasty Uh, evolutionary legacies, because in the human uh, cognitive system, we have these stupid rapid fire systems that we usually call the fight or flight responses, which are uh, coping with danger, where we have... uh, like if we were talking about computers, we'd talk about them as, you know, inescapable low-level subroutines in the operating system. You know, they're not just an app. They're, they're baked in really deep. And so we have to decide whether to run or fight. And because those are so deep... Uh, Since the beginning of civilization, people have known that if you want to get others' attention and if you want to sort of manipulate them, activating this system is one way to do it. But what has never happened before is we've never had an interactive system that's constantly measuring people and optimizing itself to activate these these old uh, systems in the human being. Uh, so uh, what happens is when the whole society is kind of constantly being prodded by the algorithms to excite their uh, fight or flight responses, and it's not like anybody at Google or Facebook sat there and said they wanted to do this. Well, maybe at Facebook, but certainly not at Google. Um, it's just that the algorithm naturally optimized itself into finding this thing because it's there waiting to be found by any adaptive algorithm. So then what happens is you get this diffuse version of it um, shifting the society's cognition. And uh, the diffuse version I like to call just irritability and paranoia. And so you get, you get this wafting cloud of irritability and paranoia, which then colors everything and makes people um, less sane and less able to deal with reality than they used to be.
1: Well, one of the things you say drives this Uh, and I I think this is also both correct and profound, is the business models of these companies where you you have companies that are essentially profiting off of uh, clicks and engagement uh, for advertising revenue. And so it's not just that they're tapping into these parts of our brains that have been hardwired, um, but then they get rewarded for it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was around when that happened and it's, it's really a drag. It's sort of um, a tragedy how it all unfolded. Uh, way back in the beginning, uh, there, there were a few ideas that a lot of people believed in very intensely. Everybody wanted to have perfect socialism online where there wouldn't be money and everything would be free. Everybody wanted to worship tech entrepreneurs, like uh, Steve Jobs, as an example. And and just to resolve those two things was really hard. And the only solution anyone ever found was the advertising model. And if it was just old-fashioned advertising, like on TV... It would just it would be no worse than that was. And overall, I, I think that's done more good than harm, although some people disagree with me. But it, it wasn't old fashioned advertising. It turned into this constant measurement and feedback system, this behavior modification system. And that's where we ran into trouble.
1: Yeah, I think you coined an acronym around this, uh, the the bummer
0: <laughs> acronym, which I thought was more yeah. clever at apt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um Uh, Let's see if I can remember it. Behavior of users modified and made into an empire for rent. Yeah, I I thought that was indeed a
1: bummer. That really summed it up. Um, uh, Particularly because the empire that's being rented or built is being built on our data, like our habits, our preferences, what we like, what we react to, what we clicked on. Uh, And you're passionate about the fact that our data should be ours as one of the big reforms
0: yeah so this is something i've been thinking about for many years and i i'm more convinced than ever i don't think it's i don't think it's the only solution we need i don't think it's like some kind of magic key to fixing the future but i i do think it's one part of the mix that we definitely need if you think back on the history of how people have contributed to civilization, one of the really interesting high points for me was the introduction of the idea of, of uh, quality uh, by Deming, uh, or Six Sigma sometimes it's called, where what you do is you have people who are working on something become aware of how what they're doing is contributing to the quality for the society so that they can take pride on it instead of being treated like robots. And this is famously uh, how Japan moved from being a bad manufacturing company to the best manufacturing company by making people working on an auto line, for instance, aware of how what they did affected the outcome of the automobile and listening to them, treating them as human beings. But in Silicon Valley, we haven't learned that lesson. What we say is when we get data from people, we're going to treat it as exhaust. That's always the word. Oh, it's just their exhaust, as if people couldn't contribute. And then we get all this data in, uh, that people didn't know they were contributing. And then we're supposed to make it useful in algorithms. Wouldn't it make more sense? Wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it just be smarter for people to understand how their data could be used to be motivated to earn some money to make it better, to become creative participants, to become to take on some of the power, the decision-making power of what the ultimate algorithm should do. I mean, wouldn't it just make everything better for this to be more distributed? Like this idea of treating people as mindless exhaustion. As like as like rats in the maze being like, yeah, don't 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 worry about it. <laughs> or it's like the people acting as batteries in the Matrix movies. Like it's just stupid. Like if the Matrix movies were real, the whole thing would collapse because they wouldn't have good enough data to run their AI agents. You know, like like people should participate and make good data. Like why isn't that a more sensible it's just more dignified and it'll make everything better
1: the idea of data dignity to me is profound, um, because I think it's fundamental to what the future can look like. Like if, if nothing changes, um, then things just continue to get commoditized and we get packetized and commoditized. Um, so I, I, I agree with you that there's something fundamental about data dignity, like treating us like, uh, not just, uh, I guess vehicles uh, like emitting extra <laughs> data exhaust. Yeah, uh, but but as agents, as participants, as owners, um, in my mind, as renters of our data, if we decide to to
0: share for our convenience. Yeah one one of the key ideas of data dignity is that you can't just sell your data. Uh, You can only uh, license it. You have moral rights to it, kind of like an artist in France or something like that. This is extremely important because you don't want to have some kind of data indentured servitude. What you want to have is, uh, and then here's another idea (laughs) that might not sound very Silicon Valley, but I think it's really important there have to be things like unions where people can collectively bargain for the value of their data. Uh, this is essential because if it's each person against each other person, then the price will collapse. But that's true of absolutely everything. Like we, uh, when we think about labor, we talk about unions, but, um, the the you know supposedly elite uh, scientists like me uh, who are involved in Silicon Valley companies we get together and we make corporations we make startups we also band together to limit the degree to which we're constantly fighting each other as individuals it's an absolutely necessary step to building up a society so I don't think the people who ordinary people who make data won't join exactly something like a classical union we need something new but it'll have some of the qualities of a union. Well, that there is a massive collective action
1: problem, obviously, because if you're an individual user, uh, you're just clicking "I agree, I
0: consent" and hoping for the best. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, uh, oh gosh, a long time ago, I co-founded um, uh, as, as a commission in the EU. Uh, That was one of the things that eventually turned into the GDPR, their big privacy framework. And one time I was in Geneva and I had like 2,000 data lawyers from around the EU. And I said, have any of you ever read one of these agreements that you click on that wasn't the one you wrote, but that somebody else wrote? And not a single hand went up. Like even the lawyers don't know what they say. And so in theory, the GDPR standardized them a bit, but I don't really think it's had much of an effect because the truth is code speaks lo- louder than law, you know? And yeah, com- completely. Y- and uh, I think yeah. your idea of like a digital
1: uh, union for data rights, uh, I think is necessary. It's vital uh, because as an individual, you're outgunned. Government is decades behind this curve. They don't even understand many of these issues. Uh, though I'm happy to say that now, certain states like California are at least, uh, putting laws on the books to, to start Mm -hmm. trying to empower individuals to a higher
0: degree. Yeah. You know, the, the, uh, the California data dividend law, uh, might very well be remembered as a key step along the path to making a workable future. We'll see. There's still a lot that's unknown about how it'll sort out, but, uh, it's, uh, it's a really interesting process. And for once, there are some people in the loop who, who understand a few of these things. And I feel like the different people who have different opinions are actually talking to each other. So it's, it's kind of a bright spot.
1: That's EXPRESSVPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. I love the fact that you've become a voice for reform of the internet reform of what these tech companies um, are doing with our data, because to me it's so central and you're one of the few people who can speak authoritatively about it because you're one of the godfathers of the modern
0: internet. Well, (laughs) God help us. Uh, Hey, can I say a little bit more about these union like things? Please would love it. Uh, So, um, Sometimes we call them mids for mediators of individual data. That's been a term used in the academic literature. Uh, in the California law, they're called uh, data trusts. Um, if that's, I don't know how similar the California law will be to the academic ideal, we'll see. Uh, but the idea of a mid, it's not just a union that Collectively bargain so that the prices don't fall to zero. It does a few other things. It provides for the very first time a fiducial service. So uh, a fiducial is somebody who has more power over a part of your life than you do and swears an oath to only serve your interests and not anyone else's. And a good example would be a doctor or a lawyer or certain certain financial advisors, but there's nothing like that on the internet. On the internet, there's nobody who's on your side and there, there needs to be, so they can serve that function. They can become the first advocates. They can become the first complexity managers so that you can say to them, okay, I don't know all these contracts. I don't know all this stuff. You figure it out. I've got a name for
1: uh, these collectives, Data Guild. What do you think? I just made it up.
0: <laughs> no, Guild, you know, um, I think that that's actually an interesting one because guilds are one of the uh, predecessors of – uh the the medieval guilds were the societal institu- were societal institutions that were secular and really important to holding everything together um, and they definitely uh were precursors for institutions not just unions but also benevolent organizations and other other societal structures that were really important in the emergence of decent modern uh democracies one of the things you hit on that's really powerful is that Um, Our
1: data becomes much more valuable if we willingly participate, uh, because right now you can only do certain things uh, anonymously and that if I'm uh, actually a partner in this, then the value shoots up and I may be completely uh, happy with that if I'm actually sharing in that value as opposed to right now it all uh, getting passed around uh, without my knowledge. Jaron, you you've identified so many of like the massive, massive problems that are killing us, really. So, uh, so we started by you talking about how the internet is making us essentially more irritable and paranoid, um, and and then we <laughs> yeah. we which you know you can't really argue with. I mean that, that that's happening. Uh, and then we agree that the business models are helping fuel that dynamic because they thrive on. Uh, this war for attention how do we need to reform the business models so that uh, that some of these companies are also fueled by uh, decency and reducing the negative effects uh, on our democracy culture society discourse um, you know you name it because it's affecting everything
0: well if I had my way, Uh, the behavior modification business model would be outlawed. And and you can draw a bright line about it uh, to to be specific about what that means. Uh, The use of an algorithm to measure human behavior in order to customize content for the benefit of a third party who's paying, that chain of events uh, you can define because you can see where the information and the money move in the system. And that should be outlawed. That should be considered a corrupt and, uh, and just bad model. And then as an alternative to it, uh, there are a number of excellent ones. And the most obvious one is just charging people for whatever you have and then also paying them for what they give and really turning it into part of capitalism instead of this weird pseudo stealth socialism. So uh, Google and Twitter and Facebook would ask you to pay subscription and people don't mind that. They pay crazy amounts. I mean, they do it for Netflix and things like Xbox and all kinds of stuff. I mean, the, the subscription model works. There have to be allowances for those who can't afford it, but that can work too. I mean, I I really don't. Well, you know think what that might help with With this, it problem. sounds like it sounds like universal basic income might be a helpful precursor to this. <laughs> well, um, we should talk about that. So,
1: but no, but I but, but please, to- like finish out the thought because I interrupted you. There, okay. Like the idea, no, 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 no you know.
0: right. Well, you know. So the thing is, um, I don't believe that markets always work. I think there are market failures. And I think uh, markets are technology like any other, and they have to be uh, tweaked and used well. And there's there's no such thing as a perfect technology. But when they work, they work. And so uh, I it's very strange that Silicon Valley, as it's grown up, has been kind of anti-market and that everyone's expected to do this sort of pseudo-socialist barter thing. And it's silly. I mean, uh, we we have this terrible fear that people wouldn't pay for Google or Facebook, but I think they would. I mean, it might take a while; it might take a generation well, well, for what, people what to you're get saying, used to it, But essentially, I think they would. what you're saying and I'm saying is that we're already paying. We're just
1: like paying under the rug.
0: <laughs> you know I mean? oh, <laughs> we're paying. We're paying much too high a price. We're paying. We're paying by loss of dignity and and uh, seeing our society darkened by weird paranoia and irritability. So the, the price is on, very high, but it's not direct. It's it, You don't see the immediate connection.
1: Yes, um, I love it. This is this is like this incredibly expensive negative externality uh, cloaked in the guise of it being cost free
0: yeah it's really it's really funny because it's almost like a dorm room level idea of like oh yeah we'll make everything free <laughs> you know it's 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 silly and yet it still has hold of some of these giant companies um but l- I want to give you a thought experiment and and this has to do this gets us closer to the question about uh, ubi um what if in the future robots and AI programs, could do everything, so there was no task that a human needed to do anymore. All right. So then, of course, the classic question is: Does that mean that the humans starve, or does that mean that the humans thrive? Right. <laughs> and so, um, obviously, what we will never get there a hundred percent, but if we get closer to it, even by a small degree, we don't want it to increase human suffering. We want it to increase human thriving. Right. And so. But at that extreme, at that asymptotic extreme, um, where's the value coming from in the society? And obviously the only way that robots and I, AIs can function is if they have data and if they're adapting towards goals. And those have to come from people by definition if the society is meant for people at all, at all, at all. And so therefore, the data from people, even if it's only in the form of expressing taste or desires, is the fuel that runs that future and has to be considered the most valuable resource. And that's that's a strange way of thinking. We're not used to thinking of thought itself or desire as a form of labor and I don't want us to think that way in all cases because that could become dismal in its own way of making people into sort of desiring machines of sort of some kind of absolute consumerist hell or something. But um, if we want to have a future for employment and we want employment to be real and based on things that people really offer, allowing that data is a form of labor gives us a way. To create legitimate employment for a large part of the society, maybe not all of it, but I think it—it's—it's it's a this—and this is what we call data dignity. I think it's a way to imagine that more robot, ro- more robots mean more jobs instead of less jobs, and I think it's logically consistent. And I think the numbers work out. And I, I think it's not an idea opposed to UBI, but it it might be that the future will be one in which there's both UBI and data dignity and people kind of find their way to some mix of them. Yeah, it reminds me of
1: something that uh, Albert Wenger, the uh, investor, talks about time as the new money. And it sounds like that that was one of the things that you're describing where it, like you can uh, define work and value creation uh, through uh, simply what
0: we choose to do with our time. Yeah. I mean, I at a certain point, we're seeing glimmers of that future already. For instance, influencers are people who figured out how to get paid just for being human and living, right? And some kind of a more though I, restriced... I will say I get
1: I get the sense they work very hard to stage those photos. <laughs>
0: yeah, I I mean um <laughs> I I admit I had to kind of uh suppress some sort of gag reflex when I brought up that example. But um you know one of the things about trying to think about economics in the future is that you have to be how can i put this you have to be very tolerant of the variations of how people think and feel it can't be all about your own values and so i i you know basically if an influencer on instagram or something can do well i always celebrate people's success unless it's directly cruel which it occasionally is but what i'd rather do is try to find the parts of it that give us hope for the future and what i can see there is that the influencers are serving as prototypes for what i hope will eventually be A better sort of organized or unionized movement where people share and hedge their risks and uh, become somewhat responsible for each other in order to promote quality and all the other things I talked about. But essentially, yeah, influence in itself should be a paid thing. And it, it, there's no reason why it shouldn't be much broadly paid as there's more and more AI and automation and robotics in the future. Yes, the world of abundance as opposed to the,
1: the world of, of scarcity that we assume. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now Seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it, even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So I just want to go back to some of your big... Reforms. Number one is you get rid of the algorithm that feeds us uh, pieces of content uh, for profit. Um, That that would be a very big deal. Um, And then you make it so that we own our data, um, possibly through these intermediaries that Mm -hmm. uh, that you know quote unquote unionize on our behalf, Um, and then we share in that value and profit. Um, and then we change the business models of these, uh, massive social media companies and Google and the rest of them so that there's actually value changing hands, um, which ends up changing their incentives, their practices in ways that help us as opposed to hurt us. Uh, did I get those three big
0: reforms more or less, right? Uh, Yeah, pretty much. I, I, if I can just make some very slight adjustments, uh, I don't believe in evil algorithms. My problem with the algorithm is that it's for the benefit of a third party who's paying. Uh, if you can use some of these behavior mod algorithms with full transparency for your own benefit, if you want to try to change your own behavior, I have no objection, obviously. So the the real problem is that third that third party payment and benefit, like the the algorithm has to serve you. It can't serve somebody else. That that, make, that makes that makes
1: sense. So in other words, if I'm like, hey. Um, you know, like I, I'm trying to quit smoking, or I'm trying to to, to to do to do something, yeah. Like, you know, improve my consumption of uh, Jaren's, uh
0: podcasts. <laughs> like, I, I'm allowed to, do, I'm allowed <laughs> well, to do that. Yeah, I think it would be a mistake to go down a path of having algorithm police to try to ban certain algorithms. What I, I think it's absolutely reasonable to have police who ban uh, illegitimate and hidden transactions that are manipulative. So, like, if if uh, if somebody's paying your broker to benefit them instead of you, that should be illegal. On the other hand, the particular algorithm the broker uses should not be illegal. It, what the illegal part should be the falsified allegiance.
1: Understood. So there is absolutely no problem with uh, Netflix telling me what to
0: watch next. Uh, you know, uh, I. I In my own sense right now, Netflix is on the good side of the line. There's occasional things on Netflix that bug me, but I feel like they're just doing it out of osmosis from their neighbors in Silicon Valley. Occasionally, the Netflix algorithm seems to lead you to some of their more paranoid and and low budget silly things. And I think that's not in their financial interest. It's just that it's the standard practice and People are just used to it, so when engineers move between companies, it just kind of travels with them without even anybody considering why. So as as long as no one's uh, profiting unbeknownst
1: to me from what the algorithm's feeding me, it's okay. So presumably Netflix isn't getting more money based upon my
0: <laughs> my choosing Tiger yeah. King over something yeah, else. Yeah, see, that's the thing is, ne- basically, what Netflix wants you to do is keep paying. And that seems to me to be a reasonable business model. Like it, it's a transaction for value and it might not be perfect. And there might be occasional silly things that happen, but overall it's it's okay. It's not destroying civilization. It seems like a reasonable, traditional proven way to do things as a business. You pay for service and you stop paying if you don't want the service. It's pretty so straightforward.
1: So an example of something that would not be okay would be uh, if... Like I was served up something from a third-party advertiser, like as happens on YouTube routinely. Is that correct or no?
0: Yeah. So the YouTube algorithm, so this is a bit controversial. YouTube will say it isn't so. I've done my own experiments and it appears to be so, but I haven't done them in sufficient numbers to feel like I could publish results. But most people who look at this report that if the YouTube recommendation engines just recommends a sequence of videos to you, whether it knows you or not, uh, it seems to, after some, usually like 17 hops, land you in some sort of weird, paranoid, dark territory. Uh, and 17 uh, steps always, to hell. But typically. <laughs> what? 17 <laughs> steps towards hell by YouTube. So, yeah, that's right. That's right. So more, more steps than Dante had, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's a, and so if YouTube was a paid service, I really think that effect would go away. Because their 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 interest would stop being keeping you hooked, but just keeping you paying, and keeping you paying is a very different motivation. That's different. Than keeping You're right.
1: You that's so deep. I love it so much. That you. That, I think that's a great illustration that people understand
0: of the different dynamics. You know, one of the things that's interesting about money is it has a kind of. Of course, it can corrupt people and bring out the worst, and the pursuit of money is the root of all evil, and all that. And that's that. That can be so, but there are also times when it can kind of help clarify a situation. For instance, when in in, in uh, the last centuries, as people started to organize labor movements and started to work, instead of demanding the ability to earn absolutely as much money as possible by working as hard as possible, they negotiated. Free time, weekends, and holidays, yeah. and time with family, yep. as part of the benefit package, even though it probably costs some money, and, and that's a very interesting thing. Like once you, once you can look at your choices as an adult with everything revealed and without any sneakiness, people actually tend to make better choices. And so, I think what would happen is uh, YouTube, as a business, would care less about this uh, addictive quality and more about just getting paid and then people using YouTube wouldn't expect to sit there like on a drip watching recommended videos but instead would say hey I'm paying for this I demand to see something good like you do on Netflix and there'll be complaints if they don't it just seems like a healthier arrangement on both sides I think everybody would feel better.
2: For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash rs10 today.
1: I know you've been fighting for these changes for a, a while now. Like, how do you see that fight unfolding?
0: Yeah, you know, it's a generational effort. I mean, the thing that I kick myself over again and again is i keep on wondering if back in the 80s or 90s if i'd screamed a little louder it somehow been more skillful if i could have helped steer this thing a little better because i was i was um in a few crucial junctures where some things went wrong in my view and i i sometimes wonder if i was just a little too polite or something oh back man then.
1: don't don't put that pressure on yourself man these things
0: are like freaking like you know, like, I mean, <laughs> you, know, like that. That, you know, at this point, we have this crazy situation where um, the, you know, the um, the world has aligned itself around these uh, bummer information systems to to a significant degree, not absolutely and totally, but, you know, there's a lot of it. And people often bring up to me, well, what about the old media like Fox News or whatever that has? But the problem is that even that is being colored and guided by the bummer machine. What happens is uh, uh, memes or or different uh, tropes, uh, plans of attack, talking points get born through the bummer machine, through this process of algorithmic amplification. And, and then they're turned into old-fashioned broadcast on on Fox and other channels. So it's true, Jared. It is,
1: the, the, the first time I tweeted something and then it popped up on cable news, I was like, "Wow,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah." So um, uh, we have a we have a job to do now, and it's not going to be easy. I mean, um, but I things do change, and I, I one thing I noticed is that a lot of um, if you, if you keep track of the number of former high executives or founders from Facebook who've publicly renounced what Facebook does, it's really become a long list. I mean, it's almost not news anymore. Well, the, uh, this is and, the,
1: the tough thing about this, Jaren, is like when you see and hear uh, that, like I appreciate it. I'm friends with some of those people. Um, but what you what you sense is that like Facebook has become this historic money-making machine and then enough people made enough money where they can step out and be like, fuck it. Like now I can like, you know, throw rocks at you and I'm worth millions of dollars. So like nothing bad can happen to me at this point. Like, you know, the, the stock, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, like the stock vested. I mean, I'm grateful to those people. Um, but, but that is like the sense you have, uh, and I, I'm, I am glad. I mean, they could probably make more money if they
0: uh, still went along with it and kept their mouth shut. Um, I know some of them as well, and I um, I find them to be sincere, you know, and and uh, I, I would actually a funny thing to me is that a few of them. And I'm thinking of Sean in particular, but there's some others too, who have kind of backfilled their memories to say, "Well, actually, we were evil geniuses at the time, but now I renounce that evil that evil plan that we hatched." But I was there. I knew some of them at the time they were doing it. I don't think they actually knew what they were doing. No, I didn't, no. I, I, I think
1: <laughs> you know. I, I agree with you. It's not like they weren't like malevolent. Uh, you know, it's like they're, yeah. they are like building this thing, and you know, like you, you make a choice that seems perfectly fine. Um, at a certain size and scale. And then you know you can't foresee some of the effects over time.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that's what happened. I think this thing is mostly a sort of a giant farce rather than an intentional um, conspiracy or anything.
1: Well, one thing uh, we're going to, to be fighting alongside you on is trying to activate people's data rights. Um, we're going to be uh, announcing an initiative in that direction. Uh, please consider me a friend... And ally in your work, uh, Jaron, because I think you have so much to offer. Your vision of the internet uh, would make the world so much better. Uh, and it's a vision that we need to make
0: happen because the alternative is disastrous. Hey, so I have a question for you. Do you remember when earlier this year we were looking at each other for like a minute, but you weren't sure if you recognized me and you decided it wasn't me? Um, was, was this at the Colbert show? <laughs> yes,
1: yes it was. I, I looked at and I was like like that dude looks a lot like <laughs> <Jared> <laughs> <L'Hare>. <laughs>
0: yeah I, I I play in the band on the Colbert Show with John Batiste and Stay Human when I'm in New York, uh, which obviously hasn't been lately because of you know the pandemic but um yeah I mean I was I was playing in the band and I I said to John hey, I want to go say hi to that guy and he was saying, no man we, we got it <laughs> that that's a tough band to be in it's like he 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 doesn't go easy on us so I was uh I was being worked so <laughs> well I'm so
1: glad that you, you raised that because I was like, man maybe I'm just like you know i mean like you're a pretty distinctive looking guy um but i was yeah. like maybe there are other people that look like <laughs> nah, that that's actually me uh yeah uh,
0: you know so- I, I shouldn't have put
1: it past you man i mean like you as uh as late night musician makes more sense than there is like a doppelganger of you walking around so i i could have put two and two together <laughs>
0: Well, look, man. Um, thanks for being there, and I think uh, I think your contribution in running was really profound because uh, it's it got the national conversation to be about our real future decisions uh, rather than about symbols and identity and kind of this endless churn of of hopeless stuff. And I um, well, thank you. It's Yeah, and it it really isn't that often. I mean, I I don't want to be overly cynical about this, but it isn't often that a national politician brings a new idea into the stage and starts a conversation about something real that needs to be talked about. It's like, uh, how often does that happen? I don't know. I mean, rare. It's rare. Well, thank
1: you. And one thing uh, I think is awful is that it takes someone to run for president for us to talk about some of these issues. I mean, what the hell is that? <laughs> like, what kind of mechanism yeah. is that? Uh, it's really sad how behind the times um, our public discussion and our politicians are. Thank you so much, Aaron. You're, you're like a true visionary and we are going to fight for your vision of the Internet uh, for all of our sakes. Please do consider me a friend and ally in anything you do. Okay,
0: man, and uh, I'm sure you have a remarkable future ahead, and I congratulate you and celebrate you, and I wish you the very warmest success.